Well, a good evening to you. Uh, my name's Stuart Holman, if we've not met before. And uh, if you are here maybe for the first time, you've landed right in the middle of the book of Revelation. Uh, it's a pretty tough book. And uh, for some uh, reason in the providence of God, we're at the very toughest part tonight. So uh, a special welcome if you're here and going, what, are they, what have I found here? Great to have you here. This passage tonight is actually all about shaping our hope. You know how our expectation of the future determines how we live in the present? So, for example, you know, if, if I expect that the people I've invited around for dinner are actually going to turn up on my doorstep at 7.30, before they get here, presumably, I will you know, tidy up the house and I'll buy food and I'll set the table and I'll do all those sorts of things. Okay? What I think is going to happen in the future determines what I do in the present. That same principle applies for the big stuff in life as well. So if you expect that one day God will expose and examine everything you've ever done, you'll be very careful about what you do in the present, right? But if you think, I don't even think God's there, and I will never be held accountable for whatever it is that I do, well then, you know, you can live selfishly quite happily. Tonight we get a glimpse about where this whole thing is going, where our world is heading and that is going to impact the way that we live today. In this series on the book of Revelation, we're actually drawing near now to the very climax of the book. We're not quite there, but we're almost there as we glance into the future. And as I said at the outset, the effect of this on us is to actually grow our hope. Okay, So hope is faith looking to the future. Okay, we are shown future things so that we have a firm foundation for living in the present. So with that in mind, let's dive into Revelation chapter 20 itself, looking at verses 1 to 6. And the first thing that is going to shape our expectation is that knowing God is in complete control of everything that happens here. As we see this plan unfold, initially it sort of seems a bit confusing uh, Satan is bound up and thrown into the abyss for a thousand years to keep him from deceiving the nations. And then after this, in verse 3, he's released for a short time. But then, verse 4, we see that there are thrones set out with Christian martyrs who have remained loyal to Jesus and they're alive and they reign with Jesus through this thousand-year period. And they are the ones who share in this first resurrection. How are we going to make sense of that? Well, keep your Bibles open because that's where we're going tonight. What I'm going to try and do is put that narrative in a kind of a system, in a, in a framework to try and make sense of it so that our hope will be strengthened. But first of all, a word of caution. For a very long time, Christians have been trying to play this game, building a kind of a framework. Okay, we can understand exactly how the future works. And uh, they've come to quite different conclusions about what that framework is going to look like. And, you know, as is our want as Christians, we've got to sort of said, well, look, you know, if anyone comes to a different conclusion about this thousand-year period than me, they're obviously wrong. And they're really just not reading their Bibles correctly. <laughs> and then it got worse. Then we started playing the isms game. Do you know the isms game? It's when you give everything a name and a label. And uh, so we have lots of isms to deal with. Um, I found at least five. We have dispensational premillennialism, then we have historic premillennialism, and then postmillennialism, and then amillennialism, and panmillennialism. 
And what's the difference between them all? I'm so glad you asked. (laughs) The basic difference has to do with when we understand Jesus will return in relation to this thousand-year period. Okay, does he come back before the thousand years? Okay, so that would be the first two, those pre-millennialist understandings. Okay, pre-millennial. He comes back before the millennium. And then obviously the post-millennialist view says, oh, no, no, Jesus comes back after the thousand years. And then the a-millennialist view says, what's the deal with this millennium anyway? Is there really such a thing or is this more symbolic? Is this a picture of something? Okay. And then, of course, there's the pan-millennial view, which is very simply, God's got this under control. Um, it's going to pan out okay in the end. I'll be a pan-millennialist. It's all good. Now, for a long time, I want you to know that I was in the pan-millennialist camp. Uh, you know, this is just kind of like a theologian's storm in a teacup. I'm happy to just go with the flow and say, you know what, God, you've got this under control. And so if that's where you're at and you're feeling that with all of this stuff on the screen, I just absolutely sympathise. I understand that. But I want to suggest that kind of just shrugging our shoulders and giving up when it comes to the millennium kind of undermines our hope. God has, in fact, chosen to reveal something of this to us here in Revelation 20. And so choosing not to think too hard about it, you know, just keep my hope a bit nebulous, a little bit fuzzy, actually diminishes my hope. It actually takes away my compass and my anchor. And that's what hope is, right? Hope is our compass and our anchor. Hope tells us, I know where this is going, and so it gives me an orientation, a direction. That's my compass for the future. And our anchor holds us firm in the present, no matter how bad life gets. And let's face it, it can turn pretty nasty. No matter how bad it gets, I am anchored firm because I know where this is all heading. I know where it's going. And so that's why I'm against the pan-millennialist view. (laughs) I think we can do better and we should give it a crack. That's why I want to show you why I think the amillennialist scheme is the best explanation of what we have in front of us here in Revelation chapter 20. Um, I want you to know that I have great respect for many good and godly historical premillennialists. I just happen to think that they're less right, that's all. Okay? I have some much more significant problems with dispensational premillennialism. That's a conversation maybe for, uh, you know, for a little bit later. But the premise of that view is that Israel, the nation of Israel and Christians, are saved differently. The Christians get raptured up into the sky before Jesus goes down to the earth and actually sets up a new kingdom in Israel, rebuilding the temple and starting sacrificing again at the temple for a thousand years until all the Jews become Christians. It's the basis of American foreign policy during the 70s and 80s. I'm not for that. Postmillennialism has this idea that the world is just going to get better and better and better until it gets really great, then Jesus will turn up and reign for a thousand years. You've just got to look at the world and go, you know what, it's not getting better and better and better. Not so popular anymore. The other thing that we really need to keep in mind as we kind of address these millennial questions is that this is the only time in the Bible that this thousand years idea 
occurs. We don't have very much to go on. And so if we kind of make this the platform for everything else that we believe about the future, well, it's not much of a platform. What we really need to do is go to the rest of the Bible where it is clear and make sure that whatever we understand here about this thousand-year period fits with that is informed by the rest of the Bible. So, okay, what's the deal with this amillennialism? What does it say? And how is that going to actually explain what's a pretty tricky section here of the Bible in verses 1 to 6? Well, the first question that we really need to ask is, okay, when does it begin? When does it begin? And verse 5, if you have a look at it, describes the beginning of this period as the first resurrection. Now, what's the first resurrection in the Bible? Well, okay, well, it's pretty easy, right? It's Jesus, AD 30. Jesus' victory on the cross actually results in Satan being bound. His ability to deceive the nations is limited then for a very long period of time. Everywhere else in the book of Revelation, we've seen the number 1,000 or 1,000 times something. We've just said, yeah, it's a really big one or it's a really long one. Here, this 1,000 years is very simply a symbolic long time. And in that period of a 1,000 years, we're told that the souls of Christians share in Jesus' ascended rule. That is, they're included in this first resurrection. We see that in verses 4 and 5. Actually, in verse 4, if you have a look at it, it, it's a little bit tough because it says it's the souls of those who have been beheaded that rule with Jesus. Literally, the text seems to be saying here, it's only if you got your head chopped off in testifying to Jesus that you get to share in his rule. But I think quite reasonably that we would actually include all people who have lost their life testifying to Jesus. So, you know, that would include people who've been killed by the sword or fed to the lions or burned at the stake or who've been put in concentration camp or in jail, okay? All those who've been persecuted as they testify to the truth of Jesus. All who've suffered for Christ. Great and small, not just the beheaded ones, I think we can quite safely say, are there. And if you'll permit me, I want to take one more step here. From looking at the rest of the New Testament, I wonder if this group might not include all Christians simply because the New Testament expects that all Christians will testify to Jesus. All Christians will be persecuted in one way or another. All will suffer. Remember the thief on the cross. Jesus says to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. How does that work? He's put his faith in Christ. He's a Christian. He will be with Jesus in that first resurrection. It's bit hard to be definitive about this and I'm not going to push it really hard I think that that's the most likely understanding uh, for verses four and five and I find that really comforting if you've lost a Christian friend or, or family member you know where they are right now they are reigning with Jesus enjoying his rule his resurrection but that's actually not the focus of the passage. The main focus is actually this 1,000-year period where Satan is bound so that he cannot deceive the nations. In this period after Jesus' death and resurrection, the gospel has spread 
throughout the world. And Satan has been powerless to stop it. I mean, it's incredible, isn't it? A motley crew of 11 fishermen and tax collectors have seen their message of Christ spread to the entire world. It even ended up in Roseville, for goodness sake. Who would have thought that? Satan has been utterly powerless to stop the progress of the gospel. And for us in our time, I think this really bears thinking about. We are at a time of incredible opportunity. This is the day where Satan can't stop the word of Christ from spreading. And it got me thinking through the week. How am I involved in that? If this is the time of opportunity, what am I up to? I mean, I wonder, do we pray for the gospel message to be made clear to every person in our community? Is that something that we're actually praying for? Are we praying for that opportunity? Lord, please let me tell the story of your grace, even in my life, to someone, anyone. Lord, make that happen. Will you pray for our mission and aid partners, for Malcolm and Leanne in, in Southeast Asia? Hanoi. Have you thought that one day maybe God would send you somewhere because he wants the gospel to spread? This is a thousand years, whatever long that, however long that is, of great opportunity. And I hope we're making the most of it. But at some point, that thousand years ends. And when it does, Satan is free to deceive the nations. But the result of that is actually his doom. I'm at verse 7 now. Have a look as I read it. When the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison. and He'll go out and deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The one detail that this passage does not tell us is what happens to mark the end of the thousand years. We don't know, but we do know what to look out for. We look out for the effect of Satan deceiving the nations as they gather together, organized against God and his people, the church. I think we could focus a little too much on that short period of deception and tribulation. But the thing to notice is that that time period, however long it be, where Satan is off the leash and gathering the troops for war, that serves to bring about the final judgment, the very end. So the reference to Gog and Magog, there's actually a reference to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 38, which kind of prophesies a cataclysmic battle. Where against all odds, God decimates all of Israel's enemies. The same thing happens here. Okay, So Satan gathers all the forces that he can, everything and everyone in rebellion against God, and you think, oh no, this is going to be the, the massacre of the faithful. This is going to be terrible. But suddenly, out of nowhere, God just, it's over. <laughs> Lightning falls from heaven. Just as we saw in the Battle of Armageddon back in chapter 16, you may remember that from a few weeks ago, the details are so similar. I'm sort of wondering actually if this battle, this final battle described here isn't the same 
as the one in the seventh bowl of wrath in chapter 16. Verse 9, fire comes down out of heaven and devours all the enemies of God. And with that, Satan himself is thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, just as the beast and the false prophet were thrown into the same lake at the end of chapter 19. Now the devil is consigned there in hell forever. And that fiery lake of sulfur, it's a picture, okay? It's a, it, it's, it's a symbol to show this is hell. It is a place where they are tormented day and night forever and ever. It is everlasting destruction. And here's the thing. When we live now in the light of this future, that certainty, when we live knowing that that's going to happen, that the devil and all evil is ultimately ended and disposed of, in the present, I can reject his lies now. Go, you know what? I don't need that and I won't be fooled by that because I know how it ends. Yes, he still tempts and he still distracts. It's like a dog on a chain, a big bad dog on a chain. If you get too close, it's pretty dangerous. You don't want to be there. But when you're out of the range of the chain, not a problem. When you are tempted, when you doubt, if you're in some dark place, remember that Satan and evil has an end, a full stop, where it no longer exists. But you will. You will endure and you will enjoy the reign of Jesus with him forever. Well, the next thing that happens, according to verse 11, is the final judgment of human beings for all time. After all of the signs and, and the tragic warnings throughout the book of Revelation, somehow it still surprises people. They never imagined it. Oh, who thought that this could have happened? But it is going to happen. Have a look at verses 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. Earth and sky fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they'd done, in, as was recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the death that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he'd done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So in this final climactic judgment, everyone who's ever lived, great and small, are resurrected and they stand before God's throne. So this is the second resurrection. First resurrection was Jesus' resurrection. Here we have a second resurrection. And at this judgment, the record books are opened up. And a record of everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, everything we've ever thought is there to be seen. And there's another book. It's called the Book of Life. And that book is also consulted. The Book of Life records all those whom God has chosen for a salvation, for eternity. Now, either your name's in that book or it's not. And that's really God's business at that point. This is God's domain. But in verse 12, before we even get to the outcome of that book of life, we're told that the dead are judged according to what they've done. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? 
if, if everyone just looked at your actions, could they, would they know that you're a Christian just by what they saw? You know, in the book of James, it says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if a person claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. You see, true faith will always result in actions and in deeds. Okay? There, there's no point saying, oh, yes, yes, I believe in God, but my life doesn't show it. You know, the way that I, I live, what I say, the way I conduct myself throughout life, it's really all about me. In the final judgment, the very objective evidence of your actions and your deeds distinguishes your genuine faith in Christ from that which is false. Now we know, and I take it that we all do, that Christians are saved by grace through faith alone. Jesus has done it all for us on the cross. That's the mechanics. That's how it works. But we cannot ignore this. This evidence-based judgment where God looks to see if our faith was real and if it did stuff. That will be the subject of God's searching examination that final day. So it seems that there's two books here open on the Day of Judgment. There is the Book of Life, which is God's choosing of us. And then there is this second book, which reveals how we chose God. It reveals our response to God's grace in our life. It reveals how we lived, knowing that Christ had done it all for us on the cross. And I think the reason that we kind of struggle with it, particularly here in this little passage in Revelation, is that it kind of skips a few steps in the process that link this book of life with the actions and deeds that followed in my life. You see, unless we are saved by Jesus, by his grace, unless our faith is truly in him, we will never produce the fruit that lasts into eternity. So when God looks at our actions, displaying that faith that we have in the Lord Jesus, they will tell the story of God's incredible grace by the way we acted. So we come back to that question that we posed a few moments ago. If people just looked at our actions, the people that we do business with, the people that we go travelling with, the people that we love to socialise with, would they know that we are Christ's on the evidence of our actions. You see, it turns out that the things that we do in our life actually have eternal significance. What we do today will matter forever. Let's make sure that our love for God, our joy in being saved by His grace, is something that becomes well-known. That becomes obvious to everyone around us. Now there is a tragic side to this final judgment. Where those whose actions fail to reveal faith in Christ, they are thrown into hell, into the lake of burning sulfur. That's the second death, as it's called. Okay, the first death, we died somewhere in time, somewhere during that thousand-year period, right? 
But now, after we've been resurrected and faced judgment, there is a worse fate. It's called the second death. Just like Satan and his beasts were thrown into the lake of fire, so also are people who did not have their faith in Christ. Now, if I could just take a little... You don't mind if we just do a little aside here? Glad. There's a few different views about what it means. What's the experience of being thrown into the lake of fire like? What's that look like? Are people who were thrown into the lake of fire uh, simply you know, burned up and then they cease to exist? Or is theirs an experience of enduring torment for all eternity? The people who support that annihilationist view argue that, look, on the basis of God's justice, uh, you know, proportional judgment, if people only rebelled against God in time, then surely his judgment must be time-bound, couldn't go on forever. Against that view, and this is my conclusion from the text, is verse 10. If Satan, the beast, and the false prophet, who were thrown into the very same lake of fire experience enduring torment for their evil, as it says in verse 10, then it seems that it's the same fate awaits those who are thrown in in verse 15. That view, more difficult to stomach, I think it's hard to hear that, seems to fit exactly with Jesus' teachings on the same topic. Um, We can talk about it later on if you'd like to go further with that. It's a complicated discussion but it seems to me that this lake of sulfur and fire is not a place you want anyone to be. At the end of Revelation 20, God's judgment is complete. Only the righteousness of God brought about by his grace remains. Evil is no more, and that is a beautiful thing. Never again will evil rear its ugly head. So Revelation 20 assures us that we can look forward with hope and confidence. We don't know all of the details between now and that amazing and great and awesome day, but there are some certainties that we can depend upon. The first one is is that God is in control. Don't you see that throughout the book of Revelation? Particularly, God is in control of the present and in the future, and we can trust him in that. Secondly, Satan is bound like a dog on a chain. He is prevented from deceiving the nations. There is a huge difference between deceiving and tempting. Oh, he still tempts. He still tries to distract and disrupt, but he cannot stop the gospel going forward and changing lives. And so now we have this in time of opportunity. This is the time when we can step forward with the love of Christ, with the gospel and the good news of his death and resurrection to save us. Third thing we can take from this. Though it's a short time that Satan will be allowed to deceive again, his end is certain. Just when it looks like, oh my goodness, the Christian faith is going to be wiped out and all of the Christians are going to be smashed, God will suddenly intervene when no one expected it and completely overthrow Satan and all evil and throw it into hell, forever destroyed and never to come back again. And in that day, last thing to remember, in that day, 
when God judges mankind, we realise that the things that we did in these days, great and small, they matter. They have eternal significance. Our actions motivated by faith, big and small, public and private, they will receive their reward. They will demonstrate the grace of God in our lives. When you serve Jesus, when you honour God, when you love the lost, when you love the poor, when you love the outcast, when you love God's people, that matters. And it matters forever. Will you pray with me? Our great God and Father, we thank you for the certainty that your word gives us, this hope that at the end you will judge evil and dispose of it completely. We have many questions and we confess that we don't understand it all. But we ask that in these days you might have great mercy, that your grace will abound and extend to many people, to the people that we love, to the people that we know, the people that we long to learn of Jesus. Father, please will you use us. May your grace manifest to us, give birth to wonderful lives of good works that shine your goodness and your glory. Give us wisdom to live in the light of this grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.